Hey everybody, it is Jeff again, coming to you right before you listen to another interview. This is kind of becoming a recurring thing. I don't know how I feel about that, but as long as there's something I need to share with you before you hear an interview, I guess I'll keep doing them. In this instance, it happens to be the fact that Sam and I were having a wonderful conversation and uh, we covered a lot of great things in this interview, uh, but we got one thing wrong the entire time. It wasn't until after we got done talking that Sam realized we were using the wrong launch date. So uh, this campaign is actually going to launch January 19th, 2015. You're going to hear us continually say January 17th. That time is obviously past. It did not launch because it was the wrong date. We are actually looking at this launching. If you're listening to this the moment I put it out, first of all, good on you, but launching tomorrow. Uh, otherwise, if you're listening to this after that, again, January 19th, 2015 is when Last Starfleet is going to be on Kickstarter. So there you go. I just wanted to add that correction. So go ahead, sit back, relax, listen to Sam and I talk about all things Last Starfleet kickstarter some lessons he's learned because this is a relaunch uh we talk some metrics all kinds of interesting things are happening in this interview and i had a lot of fun recording it so i hope you have a lot of fun listening to it Welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding Interview Edition, recorded Wednesday, December 10th, 2014. That's right, it's been a little while since I've been able to record one of these. Of course, this is also a semi-slow time in uh, Kickstarter, so that's part of it as well, uh, between that and holidays. But we are back, and we do have an interview. We are going to be talking to somebody who is going to be relaunching a project, so hopefully we can also get some wonderful lessons for all of you guys to uh, learn as well. And on that, who is joining me on Google Hangout tonight? Well, hi, this is Sam Opplinger. I'm the founder of Wicked Grin Games and the lead designer of Last Starfleet, which will be launching on January 17th, beginning of this next year. All right. So you'll be uh, waiting until the beginning of the new year. That's That right there alone is one of the uh, wonderful lessons that we can talk about right away because <laughs> I, I've had to do some convincing here recently about uh, some people not launching right now. Wait till the year starts. Wait till the new year. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely there, there's a lot uh, a lot of uh, chatter in the kind of communities i'm part of for for kickstarter launches uh, where i try and share things i learned from that first launch a lot of philosophy and hypothesis and uh you know and tea leaf reading on when exactly you're supposed to launch and i think what you get out of it is that there are maybe not any right times but you're definitely right now is a wrong time yeah, it's uh, we're we're kind of getting into it early before uh, even even getting to my warm up questions, but that's okay. That's how I like to do things. <laughs> I, I like to go with the conversation. But you're you're absolutely right, and it's it's actually there is quite a bit of you know you you did call it like the tea leafing and all that stuff, and there is some people think there's a certain standard and a certain process for how you do everything. I like to think of some of those, some of those I agree with. Some of them I think are more flexible guidelines, or if you plan enough. You can plan for the contingency of what people think that area is. But this is one of the times of the year that I kind of agree with what people are saying. And to kind of back it up right now, we're seeing some data on it from various individuals that like to share uh, what they have going on as well. For instance, one of the ones that I like to point out with right now is you know minion games just recently and it's already ended he's not even going into the christmas season per se but minion games james Matthew had dragon flame up which looked like an excellent game uh we got to review it it's probably the most reviewed game he's ever put up on kickstarter it had a small price point i mean it, it had all of these things going for it and mm -hmm. it did fun and it was successful and it did hit plenty of stretch goals but James was sharing along the way, like, this is one of the, this is one of the projects that he's had, like, the most cancellations in, the most, you know, and for a while mm -hmm. there, he was kind of scared about it. It was, was kind of starting to worry him. 
So there, there's that, you know, and I've had conversations with people about projects that we've been talking about or people that have been promoting with us. I've had people just come out and say, you know, these are a lot of great projects, but I just can't back anything right now because of this time of the year and it's killing me. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think the, the hypothesis that was part of those discussions, at least on the, uh, there's a Facebook page, several actually that James Matthew has, uh, I think that's how you say his last name is Matthew. Maybe it's math I, that he that he uh, supports. I'm part of those absolutely wonderful advice that and Stonemeyer games. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I followed that dragon flame. I followed that dragon flame kind of debate and I and saw those concerns and all that. Uh, and and the only thing that you're trying to capitalize on in, in, in the end of the year, it seems like is is this kind of Christmas gift uh, wish list kind of consumerism bulge that we get, you know, especially here in the States. But it just doesn't work that way for Kickstarter and especially not so early before Christmas, you're not getting those, oh shoot, I should have got them something. People aren't really thinking about it too much. It just, Kickstarter just doesn't seem to work that way. It's not where people, it's not where people buy the, buy, buy Christmas gifts because you're not going to get it for 10 months. What kind of gift is that? I mean, that, that's the biggest thing. I mean, at most, some companies have, usually the companies that do it have done it because they meant to be done and in people's hands by Christmas and it just didn't work out. You might get like, hey, we, we, we're sorry we haven't, met this date that we wanted to meet. Here's a, you know, an, an art card, you know, a Christmas card that you can give <laughs> to the person or something like that. Let them know you did get them something. But yeah, in December, nobody is really going to Kickstarter unless they happen to be with somebody that under, that, you know, is, is fully into gaming and understands Kickstarter. Nobody's going yeah. to Kickstarter going, you know what? In December, I'm getting Christmas presents <laughs> off of yeah. Kickstarter. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even even the postcard thing, you might as well have a, a lump of coal with an IOU uh, etched to the bottom of it, right? <laughs> That's just not the way Kickstarter buyers buy, you know, unless you're lucky. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So now, hey, you know, now that we've had a little bit of a conversation, let me, let me give you my warm up questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> okay, Sam. The Game of Crowdfunding is part of the All Us Geeks podcast. It's a standalone segment that we like to do. Because of that, we would love to know what makes you a geek, sir. Well, I, uh, the, the the bookshelf uh, filled with you know games and 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 you know computer games and PlayStation Three games and fantastical books and all those things is a testament to that I am. But I think what uh, what made what made me a geek was a series of circumstances I think I think no one could withstand without a little future geekery. I am the youngest in a real large family, and we grew up on the outskirts of a small town in middle of Arizona, and uh, we didn't have TV, and uh, I was homeschooled. So uh, contend with that and don't become a geek, I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other questions that I like to ask uh, in our warm-up segment is, you know, we like to talk about it and point out that you can really geek out about anything. So do you have any geek level passions for something that a typical person would not consider maybe geek related? I wonder. I, I have a number of, of hobbies and I kind of geek out on my hobbies. If I'm going to do it, then I kind of go all in. At the very top of the list, of course, is uh, creating tabletop board games. Before that, though, and still, whenever I can, if I'm in a crew of people that are enthusiasts, I, I still uh, play role-playing games. Uh, and that's kind of where it started even before I had a passion for, for tabletop. Uh, but, uh, you know, and aside from that, I, I do acrylic painting, which is a art form that I really stuck with. I don't intend to be some famous artist. I just do it because I enjoy the act of doing it uh, very, very much. But, that you know, the house is absolutely covered with uh, with my paintings. Well, I work with a, uh, a nonprofit here in Chicago called the CARA program, and uh, they work with disadvantaged adults, people that have had maybe a past incarceration or a lot of law trouble or something in their life that keeps them from really having like an honest and a sustainable kind of a job that can support them and their families in the long run. And we kind of, we take them in and we do counseling on, you know, personal counseling. We do career counseling. We help them with the resumes. I go in and do uh, uh, mock interviews where I, where I act the part of an employer at whatever job they're looking at. If they've got one, uh, they've got a kind of a job ad in mind. I take them through the interview and rate them and talk to them about it afterwards and stuff like that. It doesn't maybe sound altogether that glamorous, but it's an easy charity to get really passionate about. And so I'm, I'm, I guess my title there is I'm 
uh, an ambassador of the CARA program because it's it's not giving the you know the participants the students fish if you will uh, it's teaching them to fish and the change that it makes when they come back a couple years later in their lives if they compare five years back or before they got before they were entered in the CARA program is like so significant it's just like wow you, you this is this is worth it aside from that program painting nerdy books you know those sorts of things I think I attack I'd probably say my work. I really do geek out about my work. I've been in the same job for eight or nine years, and I just love it. Well, one, that charity aspect of what you do sounds awesome. That's something I, uh, it's near and dear to my heart, just the, anything community or, or charity related. You know, we tend to do like a pledge drive for the podcast, but we at a certain point, we always kind of go, you know what, we've, here's what we need to sustain ourselves for a year after that let's split money with charity, you know, something like that. And then even like uh, the convention I used to run, we used to always do something with charity, the gaming organization I used to be involved with, we used to do charity or stuff. So I think that's awesome. That's, it sounds great. So kudos to you, sir. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, you know, you kind of segue into the last warm up question, which is, and you can be as specific or vague as you want to, but what do you do besides make games for a living, sir? Well, I, uh, as a career, I'm a consultant and I work in healthcare with provider organizations, which means if you're outside the industry, these, these big conglomerates that have maybe hospitals and a whole bunch of clinics, you know, like medical clinics that you would go to all under one wing. And I, I do computer systems for them. My last employer was Deloitte from Deloitte Touche Tomasu, which is what they're called now. I taught a class. I was a senior consultant there and I taught a class to my to consultants or some of my peers that were interested in the industry. And it sums up what I've stuck in and what I do well, although it's kind of a funny title I thought I would share. The class was because a two-day boot camp and it was called RCCIS EMR Implementation Bootcamp for PMs. It was a mouthful, right? I, we, and we had to decide. It stands for Revenue Cycle and Clinical Information Systems Electronic Medical Record Implementation for Project okay. Managers. <laughs> Easy, right? So I could say project management, but I always thought that was funny. And whenever I started out the class, I said, well, I had to decide between a title of the class that could wrap around me twice or two heaping spoonfuls of alphabet soup, and I went with the latter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then did you immediately go into, and this is why we shouldn't use acronyms all the time and confuse people. <laughs> it, it's kind of funny because where I work, they, they made this big deal about we're going to try harder to not use all the acronyms, or if we do, you know, we're going to make sure everybody, because that's the big thing. Everybody's throwing around acronyms, yeah. and we've got, like, acronyms <laughs> that mean the same thing to two different locations. Or mean you di- call different it, things. You could call it the A, the AAII. You could, it could be the anti-acronym <laughs> and initialization initiative. <laughs> but, uh, ever since they've made that announcement, not a single person is. It's like, I, I, I still hear new acronyms that nobody's ever explained to me every day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We got, I mean, you get it constantly in, in IT and any, anything. If you're in IT, they're making up, they're making up acronyms. They're making up new words. And I think the reason is that we're making up new technologies also. But we have no excuse for it in my closer to my industry is really in consulting. We just have no excuse to make up like, okay, greenfielding is a word we made up. Let's also make up brownfielding. That's a word now, you know, because <laughs> we don't have an excuse. <laughs> and for those keeping track at home, the score is one more to the IT field that gets into making games. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we have a running total. I think IT is, is winning by this point, but it's usually uh, IT or education. And a combination, and sometimes a combination of two, which basically, Sam, you just kind of actually did do a combination of two. You just talked about how you give courses and classes, so you also are on the education side of IT. (laughs) Two more points. (laughs) All right, IT educators. (laughs) That's perfect. So, you know, you're in IT, and you told us early on here that you really love the job that you have, and you've had it for an extended period of time. Especially some, well, these days, maybe not as much, but in the early days of IT, having a job more than a year meant you were like career bound. At one point, it was very common to kind of jump around in IT, jump ship quite a bit. I can hear you, you've got the passion for for what you do and, and you enjoy it. So at what point did you decide that you also had a similar passion and even in a, a business aspect for the gaming side of things? Well, it's an interesting thing. I've designed board games and had a passion for it, just like any other hobby or most of my hobbies that I've kept for many, many years. I think my first board game I designed when I was still like in my tweens. And I just kept up 
that I always came back to it. If I had, you know, a summer break, I had a lull for some reason, I, I would always end up coming back to designing board games. But the way that I designed them is I always finished them, put them up to the tests, and then put them on the shelf. It's only recently that I, I decided that I should kind of share them with the world and, and maybe that I had something worthy of sharing with the world. It was in the last year, uh, before I designed Last Starfleet, I designed the single worst thing that I've ever made in my life. And it was uh, a board game, but it, all of its parts were very elegant. It's called Harem. And it was historically set in a really dark period in human history. But I put it up to the test uh, that I put all of my board games to. Uh, it was, you know, uh, mechanically, it was a lot of fun to play. It stayed within the, you know, the durational bounds. It scaled to the number of players. It looked great. Everything was great about it. But what I realized when I finally looked at it is this is a horrible game and it should never have come into the universe. It doesn't deserve to exist. And the reason why really finally inspired me to take board game design to the next level and, and made me decide that I could make something that was worth not just the fun effort of designing, but the rest of the effort to share with the world. Last Starfleet, uh, which is my most recent project, is everything that that previous board game isn't. You say you've kind of done the the hobby side of, uh, you know, I've designed stuff and I've made games here, here or there, but what made you decide that you wanted to get serious about it to the point where, I mean, we're talking about you being on Kickstarter and Wicked Grin Games. And do you have like a switch? I mean, you, you know, you went from, hey, I've made this game and I'm having fun with it to here. I want other people to play my game and potentially help me sustain a gaming company. Yeah, certainly. And it was actually that last most horrible game that I put together because it gave me a different perspective. It was a, it felt like maybe everyone knows this, but to me, it felt like an epiphany that I could design something that was a fun game that I think people would like, but that kind of did some good. And, I, and what I, what I did was I realized that although the last game played very elegantly, after you were done, even if you had won, you looked back on what you had done in Harem, what you, what the game made you actually do in its mechanics with a kind of a heavy heart, like, wow, I did horrible, horrible things. And I designed that game as a kind of an exercise in contrarianism, but it was so extreme that it made me realize like, hey, I can make board games that are fun and are really engaging, but the exercise of which is a good thing. It's a thing that people should do because they should be, I can design mechanics that make people make good decisions and that's worth taking beyond a hobby. And so now I've, I've gone back and retooled uh, another two of my games that I'll launch in the next couple of years in the same vein as I, as I designed last Starfleet. And that was like an engaging experience, but one that mechanically makes you exercise like good values, you know, because harem was so bad and made you do so many bad things. I started to look at board games differently. I started to look at all the board games that I've always loved differently in terms of their mechanics to say, what is, I mean, any game is an exercise is what I realized. And that's when I really lit, not just the passion of loving designing, because who doesn't love design, but the passion to actually share it with the world. And an easy example, one of my games, it's like many others, I suppose, is a game meant for real young kids that are uh, at the age where they're practicing simple arithmetic. And it's got like cute little fish jumping out of the water and kids like it. It's got colorful you know, images and it teaches you simple arithmetic. And what you exercise in that game, as a simple example, is you exercise arithmetic. And the winner, the end game of, of the design, is that the one that's best at arithmetic wins. So you're encouraged to like be better at math. Like in a real simple example, let's say you're you're mechanically you're you're going through an exercise, but when you get into kind of these more complicated adventure games and ones with this really rich theme. You're also exercising, and that's what the last game made me realize, is that I can create games that are fun and cool-looking and engaging that are an exercise in like being a good person, and, and that was worth sharing, finally. Then from there, I mean, you, you've decided that you want to share a game, so is that kind of the spawning point for Wicked Grin Games, or how did you come up and decide that that was like the publishing label you were going to use? Oh, well, as far as the, the naming, that was uh, quite an exercise. I've had some experiences before kind of naming games or considering renaming the working titles of games. And that was always a matter of some great deliberation, but nothing like Wicked Grin Games. And I, actually, where we started was a long list of proposed titles that reflected kind of my personality and the, what I wanted the personality of the of the games moving forward to be. But it was a long list. I mean, we had 60 titles on there 
And then we went through and saw which ones we could get the websites for. And from there, you know, you kind of, we worked from the short list and, and that kind of like the wicked grin is something I'm often accused of having. Uh, so it's definitely a reflection of myself, but also we won't put out a game that isn't engaging in the kind of way that you too share my wicked grin. So that's where we landed, where we landed on that. But part of that in there, and we've had this, I've had this discussion with uh, other folks starting companies naming their games is get the website because you, I mean, if wicked grin games wasn't available, you should have a list where you can go check something else. You know, if you really land on a title, it better be worth maybe 10, 10 grand fighting somebody for the UR or, or for the dot com, you know? Yeah, there, I've done a lot of that. I've, uh, all the way down to, uh, the convention I used to run was called Gamers Reunion. And there were two reasons for it. And a lot of people are like, Oh, why didn't you do something with con? Like everybody else does. So everybody knows it's a con. And I was like, well, first of all, and I would give the, the meaningful reason behind it. And everybody like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I'd go, and second of all, this domain was available. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I've done the domain search thing going, that's what I wanted to name something. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, what's in the name? And and one, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no reason why you should be so stuck to one specific name. And if for some reason it's just got to be that, you better be prepared these days to pay for it. Yes especially these days because it's so hard to between people. I mean, there are times like it's like, uh, you know, I've got domains that I want to do something with maybe in the future. (laughs) Oh, uh, me too. And I I, I pulled the (laughs) domains. I I put all of the titles of the games I'll publish in the next couple of years on the chopping block. And that means that I said, you're subject to change if I can't get your .com. And actually only one of them changed, but it changed for the better because I was still going to work on this. I'm going to put out a, a game that's like a very rapid territory takeover game, but it plays in, in less than 60 minutes. So it's sort of like a risk thing, but it's fast called Reign of Man. And it used to be called Chronicles, but Chronicles was short for Chronicles of the First Great Empire. And then, of course, had an initialization, which I know, as we discussed, is a no-no. <laughs> So it ended up working out, uh, you know, to, to get that dot com. But I mean, if, if you haven't published it yet, it's not that big a deal to change a name to a dot com you can get. I know you're in IT and, and you've actually maybe a lot of this does kind of cross over since you do a lot of stuff on the consulting side of things. We're still in the early stages, at least in this conversation of, you know, you, you've made the transition and last starfleet is going to be the game that you you know you've worked on and, and tested and decided that you want to share with everybody else and then wicked grin games comes along you got a, a website and everything and apparently I, i'm assuming then at this point we're kind of also originally not now but originally kind of looking at kickstarter and deciding on on that option but there's still that whole that's the surface fluffy stuff right now, kind of. You know what I mean? The back end of it is, you know, the how how did you decide or how did you go forward with, you know what? I'm passionate enough about this game that I want to learn what it takes to go through manufacturing, find a printer, go through distribution. You know what I mean? That yeah. side of I mean yeah. the, the real guts of, you know what, there is actually a job behind giving a solid game to people uh to play. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I, I definitely get I'm, what, you, what you're getting at. I, I think a lot of people, most people that I've talked to anyway, who are passionate about a game design or anything even similar, RPG design, computer game design. And there's some communities here in Chicago I'm a part of. So there's, you know, pretty, pretty big uh, group. They really like to design. But when they start digging into what it takes to actually form the company, do the publishing, manage distribution channels and shipping, do all your pricing to find wherever you're, you know, wherever you're, your break even is for your for your back level on, on crowdfunding, all that. They get really intimidated. It's kind of like, well, that's not fun. I should just somebody should just get a salary to be a designer. You know, <laughs> the degree of challenge or I guess uh, in, intimidation that that presents was a little less uh, for me in the last few years when when I was uh, going through my you know, get, uh, getting getting used to and, and climbing the ranks in Deloitte in management consulting. Uh, because I was asked to do things that were completely outside of my realm a lot. Uh, and it was just part of the job. It wasn't like, okay, you mastered this thing and then that's what you're going to do. They kind of just pluck you out of your industry and say like, well, go figure that out now. And well, I was paid for it and it was fine. And, uh, you know, I had mentorship on, on not just how to do stuff, but how to quickly learn something you don't already know and then disseminate that knowledge. So when I started looking into what it actually took 
to make the project happen, uh, it was actually quite a bit simpler for, you know, than, than a lot of the projects I'd done at Deloitte. And it really wasn't that intimidating. And, and I, I would say that for anyone that looks at it at first blush and feels intimidated, just, uh, take your time because it, it's really not that big a deal. If you know Excel, you know, if you know Excel at least or Access, you can figure it out. You know, it's, it's been done before by greener folks than you. And, and uh, crowdfunding really allows you to do that uh, while uh, limiting the risk to your own uh, lifestyle and the people that you support. So one of the questions I, I've been asking a lot, we've kind of delved into that just right there, but to get a, I guess, a definitive answer from your end, I talk to people on a pretty wide spectrum of this question. So for you, is dealing with the business side of gaming something that, you know, the, the, the two, the two spectrum, the two ends of the spectrum are it's a necessary evil because I either haven't had publisher response or I don't want to go through a publisher. I really want it to stay my game. Uh, so I deal with the business side so people can have my game all the way to I've actually had people on that said, you know what? We've decided that we're not designing games anymore. We love the business side so much that we're going to publish other people's games, but we're not going to design as much. <laughs> so where mm. do you fall in that wonderful spectrum there? Well, I think maybe I fall somewhere in the middle. I, like I said, I, I really do enjoy my work. It's got an awful lot of overlap with the business end of this industry. And of course, I really love designing too. So why outsource anything that I enjoy that I can do, you know? Although along those lines, as far as like, you know, knowing your strengths and your weaknesses, there are things in this uh, industry, requirements for bringing a game to market after design for, well, for designing it, testing it in the first place, coming up with the idea and bring it to market in the full life cycle. There are things that I can't do. And and I had to kind of take a critical look because it's hard to admit what you can't do. <laughs> but there were a couple and the things that I do not do in, in the business is I don't think that my illustrations, even though I do acrylic painting, I don't think they're good enough to satisfy the vision of the product that I want out there. So I pay our artists. And then in design, in graphic design, I don't know how to work those programs and I'm focusing on other things. So that's another, you know, that's another thing I, I've kind of, I've outsourced and I work with. Uh, on last Starfleet, I worked with an amazing artist named Philip Dudek, who's in Poland. And then I work for graphic design. I work with Amit Gaja, who's uh, president of Crimson Studios, who does all the graphic design work. So I kind of bridge the gap, communicating, uh, getting you know illustrations to Amit in Mumbai, who does the design work, and then it comes back. I get it, you know, I get it crafted. I, I get the, uh, I use the game crafter primarily for prototyping, and then I bring it back to the the various communities I have here in the states to do a, like all the playtesting and stuff like that. But I, I did have to look and say, what do I actually enjoy and what am I actually good at? And just based on my background, a lifetime, lifelong passion in design uh, is one end of this, you know, kind of spectrum. And, and then uh, actually enjoying the work of consulting and putting together all the business stuff is another end, but just a couple gaps. Other than that, it's a great industry, man. There ain't nothing in it that ain't fun. Yeah. And I think you just pointed out something that is kind of, Interesting and important for a lot of people that may not be completely in the know to understand. And that is you hired an artist to do the primary artwork for the game, but you had a graphic design person help you with, say, like the templates and the layout to use that artwork in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think yeah. so sometimes people think that should be one in the same. And there are rare people that can do both. But usually you're best off having separate people do those two pieces. Absolutely. I, well, in the same way, maybe that it's it's rare and it's an opportunity. I noticed that I love the game design and the business side of it. You might find someone that knows illustration and design is capable of both, but they're few and far between. I think for the most part, and this is a sweeping generalization, which I try to avoid, but for the most part, the absolute best illustrators are a different folk than your absolute best graphic designers. I agree with that in general. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there's always exceptions to the rules. And like we said, there, there are people that, that do both sides. It seems, uh, a lot of times it's a different mindset, a different way to look at things. And a lot of times the graphic design layout is more of an analytical, what looks good here? What font? What, where should these icons be? You know, all of that kind of stuff is a bit more on the analytical side to make it look presentable and readable and all that good stuff. 
where you know you're you're getting the artwork for the stunning visuals and and everything like that that and there's less concern in fact a lot of times you're getting or potentially getting bigger pieces of art than you'll actually use because you might chunk something out because now it's got to fit in the graphic design layout to me it's yeah there's a, a different mindset at times for both of those sides oh absolutely absolutely true and there's a lot of uh, we've got graphic designers and illustrators uh, in my family so that was a known truth growing up you know some some were better uh, one uh, than the other but there are exceptions and and those few should be celebrated for having uh, a multiple and and in fact disparate talents i heard you mention it once and and it's one of those things i like to talk about so I'm going to force myself to make this the last uh, thing I ask you on this side of things. And then I think we're going to jump over and, and make sure we let the good people know more about Last Star Fleet and maybe get into some of those lessons that you can share. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. So here's what I want to ask you. I'm always curious and, and I like to present for other, especially indie designers and stuff that may, and new designers really that, or somebody that might be stuck in a certain situation, and if they hear something, go, oh, hey, I haven't tried that yet. So do you have a typical design slash playtest process that you use, or does it vary by game? Because something, I mean, that could be as well. One of the positions that I uh, that I've, I worked in in the past was in QA while I was at one of the big EMR vendors. And in quality assurance, uh, there is no different methodology, really. Uh, you put everything through the same rigorous test and retest and changes of perspective and all those sorts of things. And I think, you know, of course, you, no one wants to say, like, there, here's the recipe, always do it that way. But whatever it is you do to design, try and homogenize it to some degree. And then, of course, don't be afraid to rinse, lather, and repeat. Bad feedback is the best feedback. So really listen to that and don't get too prickly. But my rules are that I try to prototype a game 10 times before I send it to a print prototyper. And in each prototype, unless in the earlier prototypes, this is the case, unless there's like a big problem, like, oh, yeah, it's broken. <laughs> Whoops, like that needs to be taken out or completely, you know, brought back to the drawing board because of something someone noticed that you couldn't see. Then I try and play test 10 to 20 times each time before I apply changes and and then create another prototype and then present that to play testers. So uh, last Starfleet definitely and, and uh, the, the next two that uh, we're prepping for launch have been rigorously tested. And do your play tests in such a way that each one of your groups, if you can, at least it's my rule, each one of your groups has a few play tests where either ideally you weren't even present at all. And the people that are playing it, uh, there, there are no veterans, people who played it before. So you can see what, what's maybe ambiguous about your rules. And then if you, can't do that, which is sometimes hard to orchestrate. You know, you're buying a lot of pizzas and beers for people when you do that, <laughs> especially with early prototypes. You know, uh, if, if you can't do that, then at least take note and maybe take a little notepad and write down the common questions that you get. In my first few, I got the same questions a lot and they weren't well, you know, these were the things that weren't well described in the rule book. And I wrote them down and, you know, kind of like detected the themes and tried to you know, and tried to figure out what it, what it was in the rule book that was missing. And there were definitely some big gaps, just stuff that was intuitive for me. And so while you're sitting there playing as the designer, people aren't going to the rule book. They're saying, hey, Sam, you know, or hey, you know, whoever you are, does this happen or does that happen? You know what I mean? So write it down because it's probably something that's missing or inherently confusing in the rules, which is something that hits me all the time because I do love all the gritty details and things. And I have a habit with early prototypes of making games incredibly complex. What I usually do after a first prototype for all of the prototypes until it goes to print is cut stuff out. Clarify things and cut stuff out because guarantee my first prototype has more in it than it needs to have in it. <laughs> I always describe that as in my head is that first one, you know, before anybody else has ever played it. Obviously there's fireworks, people are throwing me a parade. I mean it's it's by far the best game that anybody's ever played. And then it Obviously. hits and then it hits the table. I'm like, oh no, this this is not going to work at all. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's what I put my fiance through because she helps me get it to a point where I have to show it to other people. So she gets the horrible side of all my designs until they're better. <laughs> and, then, and then other people usually get to see it. <laughs> oh, don't I know? You must have a very patient fiance. She's a saint. I've said it on the podcast yeah. before. She's a saint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good. It's good to have one. I got my, my, my girlfriend is, was, was a board gamer to some degree, but uh, never to the degree that I was. And she's been so much help through the whole process with Last Starfleet. She even went to something I don't think she imagined she would ever have gone to, 
uh, which was a board game convention, a gaming convention, uh, the Nexus Game Fair in Milwaukee during this year. And she was blown away at uh, the whole different culture that was there. Uh, and she sat there at a booth and like, and, you know, played uh, Last Starfleet with, uh, with people that came by and talked up the game. And, you know, and then I come up with a new revision and she's like, give me the cliff notes on what's changed and memorize the rest of the rules, you know, and I can step out while we're going over the rules and she just knows it. And I'm like, wow, you, you went out on, on a limb. She's so, it's a, it's a testament of patience. <laughs> Especially with those early designs. Yeah, my, my fiance is not really much of a gamer either. Well, not a gamer. She's casual gamer, and I keep telling her we need to take that uh, title away from her, and she's like, no, it's not happening because people are starting to send us stuff that they want me to try to play with her because she started helping with uh-huh. the video side of reviews sometimes. So they like when she gives the casual gamer perspective or that a couple is playing it or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that makes that trigger for people. I keep getting requests. Well, can you make sure Megan does this? Can you make sure Megan sits in on this? And I'm like, at some point you're going to play enough games where I have to take your casual title away. She's like, no, <laughs> that's not happening. Well, she could be the professional casual gamer. Yeah. She's also, again, not a gamer, but she, uh, she actually helped work the front desk of my convention for several years. Oh, see? <laughs> oh, well, here, here's to Megan, huh? Yeah. All right, man. There's a ton of stuff I'd, I'd love to have a conversation around, but of course we've, we've got time limits and all that good fun stuff that we deal with in reality. So how about you give me your high level pitch for Last Star Fleet? Sure. So, uh, Last Star Fleet is set in the kind of sci-fi futurescape of 4010. Humanity has, uh, banded together with one global government. Things are going really well. There are starships out in space off doing mining and all their, uh, all their, you know, other missions, but we don't have any other colonies. The players pick up the story as captains of one of those starships that's outbound in space and they've received a message, the last SOS from Earth. And it asks everyone to stop their missions, to set aside their differences and uh, band together, work together as a team to land a new sustainable population on kind of a savage nearby world before time runs out. It's a cooperative strategic card game that plays two to six players in 60 to 90 minutes. And it, it really is a cooperative, uh, uh, I guess a, a strong cooperative uh, game in that it's uh, very positive. Uh, what you do throughout the game uh, with your cards, commanding your ships, uh, involves moving your kind of hit points, which are actually your crew, from your ship to the surface in order to reach a sum of 85 people, which is that sustainable population. And uh, something kind of interesting happened, a few different in- things that happen interesting in the mechanics that really support a heroic kind of feel. And it leaves you with like a sweet taste in your mouth. Like you win or lose, you play the game as a team and the things that you do during the game are very positive and heroic. You might take a bullet for somebody else or spend your turn or reaction cards in your hand to make their plays more powerful. And as something interesting about the way the people tokens are moved, it's like putting your hit points onto the surface. But after that point, you can't distinguish whose crew is on which surface space because really the point is the total. So it really supports this positive team uh, building, teamwork, and a very heroic and, and sacrificing mode. It's certainly it's a, the most positive game and, and uh, that in our portfolio and the one that uh, I'm very excited to, to make our kind of flagship first product. What went into you deciding that you were going to take this to Kickstarter? That, that you were going to utilize the Kickstarter platform. I mean, I know it, it's pretty much a, a common day thing now because I've been following and working with and talking with people about Kickstarter since what I like to refer to as the Wild West days, back when you could like draw on a napkin and say, this is my idea, and people actually gave you money. But there weren't as many people and there weren't as many projects, and it was you know the smaller thing. And Today, it's pretty much almost a norm. But what made you decide Kickstarter versus, say, shopping to uh, other established publishers well a, a few different things and we and we touched on some of this before i i like the business aspects and i'm confident that uh, that we can do it well i didn't see a reason to go to, to you know with that in mind to outsource work that i would enjoy so i knew i was going to do it myself and then a couple of options that uh, that remain to you after that point are either fund it all at once yourself out of your bank account or use crowdfunding 
And actually, in retrospect, looking at the costs of that first campaign, I probably could have just funded it myself. But then I'd be sitting on a warehouse or some storage unit somewhere filled with a game that no one's ever heard about. So uh, crowdfunding offered a way that wasn't necessarily any cheaper than funding myself, but a, but a way to build a community around the product and see if it stands the test of of the crowd. And and that's what remains to me for, for crowdfunding, because like you said, it's a whole different world. If you haven't seen or looked at the Cards Against Humanity campaign recently, I just scratch my head at the just elegant simplicity of that group of friends drinking 312s, sitting around a table playing this game where everyone snickers at, at dirty words, and their page that's like 900 characters in that page and two pictures. You know, there's nothing. Uh, you just can't do that anymore. It can't be, you know, even then it was actually a simple enough product that was pretty close to done. But now it's like no, no napkin stuff, no simple campaigns. It's all got to be there. But in the end, I think it's still better because it's crowdfunding because you build on the crowd. And if it stands the test of the crowd, then you've built a following in advance of just hoping you can sell it to retailers. <laughs> I always like to point out or we have conversations around the fact that you can't rely on Kickstarter as your marketing. You've got to bring a certain amount of crowd with you and it's a piece because yes, you'll, you'll pick up some people and hopefully people that are backing it or talking to other people. Some people will discover it, but you got to kind of bring quite a few people with you. So what have you done leading up to? Well, this relaunch to kind of bring people along for the ride. I certainly agree with uh, your yeah, that comment that you got to bring it to Kickstarter. Kickstarter isn't going to build it for you. It's kind of the proof that what you brought was enough and a monetary a monetary proof of that. But uh, yeah, after the uh, of the first campaign, I realized that about ninety percent of the effort I put into that first campaign campaign didn't yield results beyond the level of effort or the expense in advertising. One of the things that I did before that flatly didn't work well, wasn't worth the time, certainly, was Thunderclap, at least for me. You're right there. No, we've actually had a couple of people on that have talked about Thunderclap, and I've talked to a couple of people about Thunderclap. And overall, at least as it stands today, I haven't looked at it in a while, but it's more annoying to the people that, that actually think they're trying to support you and it's just it's not a well uh, it's not worth the effort not for kickstarter now for Mm -hmm. for you know if beyonce wants to save the children somewhere uh maybe that works and that and that's the kind of stuff that works on thunderclap but you know that's for spreading the word and you've already got a huge amount of of social capital going into it but yeah you you got i don't know if kind of alluded to that uh with the thunderclap Uh, it doesn't work with supporters for crowdfunding at, at least Certainly on the scale that I'm at right now, just starting out with Wicked Grin Games and our first product, I think a lot of the people that some of them I called on the phone, you know, I hadn't talked to for a while to get that minimum 100 people. I think a lot of them felt like they had contributed to the campaign and my cause already because they clicked that button for Thunderclap. And I I bet I lost them as an otherwise potential backer. There's also the end of, and hopefully... This is either something that they are going to work out or they have worked out. Like I said, it's been a little while. So I haven't heard thunderclap in a while. <laughs> it actually kind of brought back memories almost. One of the things that kind of really was not good about it and, and where people that had asked people to use it started getting backlash is because it sent out all the tweets all at the same time all people and if they're people that know each other all of a sudden your <laughs> your twitter feed is just nothing but your message and people are like well what the heck and so there yeah. was there's been some backlash in the past from people that's that were like i did this for you and now it's annoying the hell out of not only me but people i know and you know that kind of thing. <laughs> absolutely yeah i'm not not a big fan but i but i tried to you know i think i might have even heard it on your podcast, on, but it was for a, a campaign uh, where the guy didn't make the minimum 100. And so I was like, well, I can make the minimum 100. And it was a challenge. It was a real struggle to get there. And then, yeah, just like you're saying, all that stuff happens. So anyway, that's one of many examples of things that didn't work. And and I, I knew I was kind of standing at the precipice there with the first campaign, ready to jump. And I knew that I didn't know all that I needed to know. But my research, you know, into crowdfunding and Kickstarter, what works and doesn't, wasn't going any farther. I kind of learned everything from reading the books that I could. And I knew I just had to kind of leap. 
So I did. I tried Thunderclap. It didn't work. And, and uh, overall, what was really helpful in that first campaign, aside from just excellent feedback, I mean, right there in the comments and people, you know, in the Facebook communities and stuff like that once we launched, which is just was absolutely priceless, you know, was, was the uh, analytics that that are available in Kickstarter. You can tell if your if backers get to the page, you can tell where they came from before that in some creepy internet way. You can they, you can tell that. So I was able to, so I, I, I kind of did a little bit of funding everywhere that I thought it might work. And then I tracked the metrics on what actually worked and uh, very few things did. So now I focus on a few different things, certainly not Thunderclap, uh, <laughs> but I focus on uh, Board Game Geek. You've got to have a profile. If you're going to launch a game, you've got to do something on Board Game Geek and somehow like build that community. You've got, and then, and, and after that, the reviewers that I looked at. Now I sent out 25 reviewer copies in my first campaign. I spent a lot of money just doing a little bit of everything to see what worked. And, uh, most of it didn't, but one thing I missed with the reviewers is two things that I always see checks for now. First off, I read the reviews of a potential reviewer who's accepting submissions and see how they do their reviews. It's a risk if you're going with someone who does reviews and you look at the, all the reviews, look at 10 or 20, and some of them are really nasty. There's a chance you're going to pay that person to write a nasty review that's going to be worse than having not talked to them at all. And all of our reviews were really positive for Last Starfleet in that first round, except for the very first one I did. And I was just blown away. I was very surprised that, you know, I was, you know, so eager getting into it and all that. And it was just, it wasn't even that the, the design was bad. It's just not how he would have done it. And I, I got that back and I, you know, I, I talked to him on the, on the phone after I was like, you know, what's the deal? And he was like, well, I would have done it this way and this way. And I was like, well, but is it like a bad game? And he was like, no, I just think like, I don't know. Anyway, I got, I got a little bit of a sour response in, in that and was a little bit discouraged, but I kept it running and all the rest of the reviews we got back. Then I commissioned way too many, but all of those uh, reviews were, were, were very, very positive. Now though, I look and see if they're nasty, and I actually am going to be submitting the game, the, the newer version of the game for the relaunch to one such company that does do nasty reviews just because I have confidence that it can stand their test and uh, that it's a good product. But but that's the first thing. If you're getting into it, be careful with that. You may be, or at least don't be unpleasantly surprised if you go to one of those reviewers. And then if you're going to pay somebody, whether or not you're going to pay somebody to do game, getting them a shiny printed prototype is going to cost you money. Make sure they've got a following, which seems like a dumb thing to have missed. But I was like, I need a bunch of reviews. So I got up, went out there and got a whole bunch of reviews. And some of, uh, some of the sites, though they were, uh, very excellent people. We had wonderful dialogues and they really enjoyed the game, had followings online in the hundreds. And you need, you probably need followings in, you know, at least somewhere in the 10,000s if you can't especially if you're going to pay for it. So so there's that. We focus on those reviews. Uh, I'll do a little bit of ad space. I'm going to focus on Board Game Geek and trying to build a, a, a following there. And then beyond that, I've actually already built that following with that first campaign. I don't think of all that money as lost because lots of people know Last Starfleet now. So while it wasn't, a, it was a campaign I ended up canceling, it still like exists. So if you look it up online, you'll get the first couple pages of Google search are going to be all about Last Starfleet. If you search any word associated with the company or myself, there's a couple things I probably caution you about a little bit. At least what from from the conversation that we were, we were just having here. One, the analytics behind Kickstarter are decent, but there is sometimes they manipulate stuff in the back. And I think James Matthew has kind of talked about this quite a bit, where he, he's actually watched that the change happen. So there's some of that, and I've actually had that happen. I've had uh, people that have been advertising with us, and they they were like, "Can we change our ad with you? Can we do? Can we give a different image? Because for some reason that image doesn't seem to be attracting anything." And I'm like, I, "I'm like, are you talking about actual pledges?" And they're like, "No, we're not getting any traffic from your website." And I pull up my click through numbers, and it's like, "No, you you are. <laughs> I I can see it right here." So, you know, I've had, and I've, I've had people actually come to me and say like, Hey, yeah, we backed this because you did this and this. But the person is like, that's great. Can you please go tell this person that though? Because they, they're the ones that really need to know that. Uh, so that's a, a partial caution, but the, the analytics are there. A lot of people try to kind of c- combine that with something like a, a bitly link and stuff like that to kind of get a more focused where things are coming from. The other one would be that. 
I don't necessarily look at us reviewers as the people that you should be going to to potentially get a ton of our traffic to you necessarily. I mean, there there are those that will, and there are core people that follow us and will at least check out. I always look at it more. So there's a there's again, just like Kickstarter is not your main marketing. Your reviewers are not necessarily a huge chunk of your market. Now there's a difference between reviews and paying for previews for from individuals like you're saying that have huge numbers. Uh, and you just want it in front of their audience and maybe, you know, through the, the numbers game, hopefully get more people that way. I tend to look at the reviewers more as, especially for somebody that's not established yet and, and that people are trying to take a chance on having those independent third party spots on your page are giving people comfort that are finding you and are potentially interested in you. So you will get some of my traffic. But you're also going to say, oh, hey, I know I've heard all us geeks before or I've heard, you know, Father Geek or I've heard uh, Undead Viking, you know, all, all of that good stuff. And, and so I'm going to see what they have to say. And this is not coming from the person that created the game. It's just it gives that little piece of legitimacy, but it's not necessarily, hey, everybody that listens to the podcast. Hey, everybody that's on my YouTube channel do it and because i said so and and that's just not kind of the way it usually it works out <laughs> mm. yeah i get what you're saying i mean your submission to a reviewer you're taking part in uh, you know in, in something like this is uh kind of a well first off it's your endorsement of the of the site that you that, or the, the company that you've approached and i didn't really do that the first time so i was more careful this time i suppose but mm-hmm. uh, i gotta look i gotta look at you really got my wheels spinning on the on the, you said a bitly link and that I maybe I can't trust so much the the Kickstarter analytics. That sounds that well, sounds nasty. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I mean the analytics are are useful, definitely useful. And you can also you know use the stuff on the back end of KickTrack and stuff like that as well to help you quite a bit. But there are people that would rather refer like please use this Bitly link that I'm giving you, or uh, especially like even like things like if for if somebody advertises with me, right? They have an ad on the website. And of course, you know, you can get click through, through that. But the other thing we do is we always share it out through our social media sites, the link to the page. So what does that mean to you? You're getting a Twitter hit. You know what I mean? Uh, I always try to put the reference on there, reference all us geeks. But again, if they're making changes in the back, that's not helpful. But a lot of times I can see, I can still go back and look at some of my links off of, say, like Twitter, I, I don't get necessarily the same analytics all the time off of Facebook and, and some of the others and like Google Plus. But at least on Twitter, sometimes I can go back through and see which of my links because I do a conversion. I don't use a straight link. I also I use a, I use Hootsuite links so I can see some of the clicks that go through. So I know I know they're getting clicked on. I know stuff's going through. But what does that mean to you if if they're not showing, and I've had people say they have not seen, tra- like I said, they, I've had no traffic from you. And so I'm suddenly digging through, no, you, you have. I'm not claiming mm-hmm. huge numbers to you or anything, but you're telling me zero people have come to you. That's not true. I can see right here off of the website ad. I have click-through numbers in the back on my end because I use an, you know, an ad plugin. I can go to the Hoot link. Uh, I can see the numbers that where they get clicked through there. So sometimes, yeah, I think the bigger ones, the larger ones, when they start, the, those maybe don't get hit as much, but some of your smaller ones may not break out as much and, and they might change it. James has brought it up several times where he's going, yep, and here's another example of me watching and Kickstarter has changed where this traffic supposedly came from and I don't understand why. And I think he's even got a blog post on uh, some of the, you know, the, the references and who the big ones were, but also the fact that how much of the lower stuff maybe even can you trust or whatever. So it's just Ooh. something to kind of wonder. But I mean, it's, it's, it's not all the time and, and it's definitely a good source for you to use. I mean, it's, it's something, right? It's there and it does give you some insight into what's going on with your campaign. Yeah. Sure. Well, some, but if I can't trust that. I assumed that I could. Now, I'm so glad that we did this interview so far in advance <laughs> of the launch. Really, I, we were about to reschedule, too. I've got plenty of time to look into something I, I took as the gospel that I guess I can't. <laughs> interesting. It. Very interesting stuff. I'm always learning something new. And, and even now, I kind of compare what I what I know now, at, just looking at uh, the preview page for this relaunch, compared to what the, for the initial launch looked like. And I go, wow, that difference is kind of worth what I spent on the first campaign. Not even kind of. It's absolutely worth 
I feel like I got a I got an associate's degree now in Kickstarter. There's always more to learn. Yeah, it's completely there's always something to learn. And there are people that have been doing well, Jamie Stagmeyer is a perfect example, right? He's constantly putting out, here's my last project. Here's what I did right. Here's what I did wrong. Here's what I'm gonna change for next time. And some of his things are even like, this is how I felt at this time. Well, you know what? Kickstarter's changed. I've changed. Here's how I feel now. And here's why I think what I did two years ago was, was not the way to do it now. You know, that kind of stuff. And there's even things like, I think even today, something as simple as I helped somebody learn how to use the friends list on Kickstarter. They weren't sure about that. Back when the campaigns were first, when you were using preview links for Kickstarter campaigns, a lot of people didn't know that they had put that notify me on launch button out there. And those are like people like me <laughs> that kind of live, eat and breathe Kickstarter because of this podcast and things that I do. I always try to watch those things and keep up with those things. And those are the kind of things that I get asked about all the time. Well, what, what's this or what's changed here? And, and it's, it's an ever evolving thing. It really is almost like a continual education <laughs> class. It really is. It is. I, and, and I've, I've seen, I haven't been even involved that long. And a year I've been, I've been in Kickstarter, Kickstarter college here trying to figure it out. Already, I did. Did, uh, did you hear about the shipping change? That was a pretty yes. recent thing and was huge for my campaign. If you look back at the old one, the way they used to do shipping, it, that little, that tiny change makes such a huge difference in the campaign. Just the fact that I can include shipping for different, I can have a nice short little list of my backers. I got five levels. You look at my old campaign, I got like 15 levels. It's just a mess trying to figure out what thing you want. And I, and when I first started out, I said, I don't want to have like a spreadsheet that's necessary, like a, a matrix that's necessary for backers to understand what level they should back at for what they want. But then I ended up with all those backer levels and a lot of the reason was shipping. And then of course my, my own, uh, my own fault that I, I changed after backers had backed at some of the levels. I changed the way they were worded. And when you do that, you have to make new backer levels. So, so that just exploded. And I was like, it's so confusing to give me money. It should be really easy to give me money. And what that shipping change, uh, that they recently made where, where you have one backer level and you can define shipping for different countries and regions and all of that. And, uh, there was some debate over whether or not that's included in your full funding goal. But I, I think where we landed is that shipping is included in your full funding goal. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. That makes it such a difference for guys living and breathing on Kickstarter, you know? You know what? I know you've got some stuff going on tonight. I know we're running a little bit over since we started down this wonderful road. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, let's do this. I, I always like to ask this one. Let's say last Starfleet is launched. Maybe somebody's heard this and they've decided to go check it out and they are looking at the project page and they're going, you know what? I, um, yeah, I, I might be on board with this. I, th- I think I, I could potentially back this. What are a couple things that you would tell them to make them go, you know what, Sam, you're absolutely right. I have to back the last star for really right now. All right. Well, do go to the page and we'll launch on uh, January 17th. We'll get it to you before, uh, before the uh, end of 2015. But the things that make uh, last star really unique are, uh, that it's a, a super positive experience that draws on a lot of strategic thinking, but that anybody can kind of join. Even if you're playing with very advanced players and you've got kind of a newbie coming in, you're part of a team and everybody works together the whole game. At no point are you waiting for your turn to come up again. And at no point also are you kind of vilifying the bad guy, which is really the situation of having very limited time and resources to save humanity and really act heroic. And, and the game really feels like that. So it's constantly engaging game, but one where you get to be in reinforced values of teamwork and heroism. And, you know, before we uh, end, I'll just ask you, is there anything that you want to stress or make sure that we've covered as far as a lesson, anything like that before we wrap up here? Well, I, I suppose the lesson that I've carried with me from uh, having to cancel a launch after a really positive kind of first drive, you know, very first time raising over five grand in a week. And then, it, you know, and, and, and looking back at it again is uh, something I carry with me. For those of you out there that are considering a Kickstarter or any other way to get your kind of creative property out there in the world, just keep on trying and uh, have a thick skin and uh, don't let up. 
Well, Sam, it has been awesome having this conversation with you. It's been a lot of fun, obviously, because we've, we kind of went all over the place and I uh, <laughs> ran out of time on me, which when that happens, that means I must be really enjoying the conversation. And, and I've always got a million questions running through my head. And that's a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I had an absolute blast talking to you, Jeff. And I, you know, I've listened to the show for a while now. You've got a killer podcast and uh, it's kind of surreal being a part of it. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Uh, I, I appreciate it. We, uh, we do enjoy what we do and we enjoy being able to talk to people such as yourself that are on Kickstarter and that are uh, designing games and kind of not only learning about who you are, but learning about your design process and your use of Kickstarter and all that good stuff. So people like you are the reason why I do this, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, geek on, man. So everybody, again, thanks for hanging out with us. Once again, Last Starfleet is going to be launching January 17th. 2015. It's the first time I've been able to say that on the podcast. I get to talk about a whole new year. How many, you guys at home count how many times I screw up and do 2014 first. But again, January 17th, 2015. <laughs> Go on out there, check it out. If it's something that, that looks interesting to you, definitely give Sam some love and back it. And again, I'm not done. I'm not done doing interviews, but until next time, guys, have fun and I will talk to you soon. Thank you for checking out a United Geeks Network family member. If you enjoyed it and are looking for other online media with a geek culture slant, head over to unitedgeeksnetwork.com where you will find Geeks of the North, a hobby and gaming podcast from LaBelle Province, discussing all aspects of the miniature wargaming hobby. The United Geeks Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at unitedgeeksnetwork.com.